sufficient conscious high-ranking member of any society, be it political, social, or scientific, you know that your attire and general presentment determine how seriously you are taken by those around you. Now, no right-minded individual with authority, influence, and power is going to allow themselves to make an appearance looking like some unkempt, disheveled mess. And neither would you. That's why you need to make your next clothing purchase at Masculine's Robe Emporium. Our store offers a fine selection of robes, tunics, doublets, jerkins, breeches, overgowns, and so much more. Make sure all eyes are firmly upon you whenever you're making a presentation, giving a lecture, or just shouting to no one in the middle of a crowded street. Everything in our wardrobe is available in the most ostentatious, garish, and downright absurd patterns which will leave anyone you cross paths with astounded and envious. Stars, moons, wolves, wolves howling at moons, flames, all of it can be included on your newest apparel when you buy from Masculine's Robe Emporium. Use the code MASON when placing your next order and we'll include a large wizard hat and wand that will make you the talk of the town. Masculine's Robe Emporium, outlandish outfits for the astute and aloof. Thank you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, a podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works and context of Thomas Pinchon. My name is Cody. I am one of the co-hosts. I'm Luke. And I'm Kate. Unfortunately, Will is not able to join us uh, for our recording today, so um, we are just the three of us. And uh, as a result, we also don't have Will's usual uh, summary, unfortunately, but um, we're going to make do with the Wikipedia summary. So we are disc- uh, we're following the reading schedule from the Pinchon subreddit, and today we're discussing chapters 74 through 78 of Mason and Dixon, the final chapters, the final part of the book. Um, and so we're going to limit this conversation to those chapters only, and we will have a capstone episode that covers the entire book next week. But for this episode, we're just going to be focusing on chapters 74 through 78. So, Kate, if you would please... Um, Give us the summary on those chapters. Sure. Chapters 74 through 78 comprise part three of the book, entitled Last Transit. And in chapter 74, Mason and Dixon return to London, where they decline for various possible reasons to accept another assignment together. Dixon is sent to the North Cape, Norway, to observe the transit of Venus, while Mason is sent to Ireland to do the same. There, he is conscripted into helping deal with peat flow, given to temperamental behavior, and visited again by Rebecca. Upon his return to London, he argues with Masculine, who assures him their office is no longer what it once was, and accepts another assignment to travel to Scotland. In episode 75, Mason visits Dixon, who is now home from his assignment, on his way to north to Scotland. The two friends fish and drink, 
admitting finally the strength of their relationship without quite putting it into words. Dixon relates to Mason his trip to the North Cape, and claims to have visited the civilization inside the Earth. Entering through the North Pole, one of the many openings to a massive hollow chamber with upside-down seas. The episode then concludes with Mason promising to visit again, Dixon being unable to travel, having come down with a case of gout. In episode 76, Mason meets Samuel Johnson at an inn on the border of Scotland, a meeting dismissed as fictitious by Cherry Coke's audience. And the two discuss Scotland and America, as well as men like Cherry Coke and Johnson's biographer, James Boswell, who are always, quote, scribbling things down, unquote. The brief episode ends with a vision of Mason's later life. And in episode 77, Mason visits Dixon, who is recently married and suffering from gout still. Dixon laments that the recent death of his mother and the political turbulence in America have forced him to abandon his hopes of emigration, deciding instead to profit from Britain's growing coal dependency. Mason, himself now remarried, confesses that his newborn son unpleasantly resembles his father, who has himself remained a Mary. The learned English dog makes another appearance, though he refrains from speech except to declare that he will next visit when the two surveyors are together once again. The two men share a dream of a performance where, in Mason's version, he attempts to introduce Dixon to Bradley, whilst Dixon envisions a duet based on their adventures. In episode 78, upon hearing of Dixon's death, Mason and his son, Dr. Isaac, make a pilgrimage to his grave reminiscent of the journeys the two surveyors previously embarked upon together. The learned English dog fails to make a bodily appearance. However, a cat lurks around Dixon's grave with a keen interest in the two Masons. Slipping into senility, Mason finally lets Masculine have it, as the two engage in a heated squabble over astrology and the events after Bradley's passing. Mason, now settled in America, is visited by the elderly Benjamin Franklin, who is accosted by rantings of Mason in regards to hidden messages in Bradley's contentious observations. Mason's second wife, Mary, prays for her husband and returns to England with their younger children, while Dr. Isaac and William, Rebecca's sons, stay in America and see out their father's final days. The story ends as the two brothers reminisce on how they as boys always wished for the day their father would take them to America. All right, thank you for that. So we'll start where we always start with our general impressions of these chapters. I, there are portions of these chapters that I like. I like the reuniting of Mason and Dixon. I like the sort of final admission that they care about each other to the degree that they do. I love all of that. I love mm -hmm. the additional expansion of the Hollow Earth. I love the closing chapter where Mason kind of finally breaks out of his self-contained shell a bit and finally works out sort of not just some frustration that he's had over the course of the entire book, especially as he's been continually denied membership to the Royal Society, but also finally sort of stands up for himself in a way that he hasn't over the course of the book. And so all of the stuff in that final discussion between Masculine and Mason I enjoyed. But I don't the rest of these chapters, I feel like, are more filler. Like, everything with Mason and his son, and, like, chapter 78 is great, I think. Um, you know, I, I, think, I think 77 is largely pretty good. 
I don't I don't think 76 is really necessary per um 75 I think is also very important with everything and then 74 is sort of that that transitory chapter but I don't know I I feel like these are very mixed bag chapters for me and that there are elements of all of them that I think are great but overall I feel like these didn't need to be the length that they were That's fair um I would I I would definitely say these aren't my favorite chapters Mm-hmm. Um, they are, there's some really, as you said, there's some really, really good parts in here. I actually, on, on, to kind of counter what you had mentioned earlier, I, I really actually enjoyed the scenes with Mason and his son. And I think maybe that partially stems from, from being a father and from having a father who was similar to Mason's. So I kind of, I, 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 I have more deep personal connection with that aspect of his life and that, uh, you know, his, his valuation of, of his time with his son at the end of his life. Um, those parts but, of, the, of the chapters I did enjoy. I did. Okay. Maybe I misunderstood yeah. you then. I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, 74, 75, like they're good and 76 too. They're good, but yeah, they could have been shorter. Um, they, they definitely weren't, I would, I would, I don't know that I would say they were the weakest chapters in the whole book, but, if I really thought about it, they might be. That's not necessarily a, you know, they're, they're not bad by any means. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't think they were, I, I don't even want to say they weren't necessary. They just could have really been, I, I think, pared down is, is, is where, yeah. where I'm landing on that. But, um, but other than that, the, the ending, the final scenes with, with Mason and Dixon, and we'll go more in depth on this when we get there, but that was, some of the just the most beautiful writing throughout this whole book um they were you know subtle and and very effective and i this is like i said the second time i've read this book and it's the second time i have cried while reading this book so yeah it's understandable there it's very heavily emotional if nothing else over the course of these last four chapters yeah, I, I agree with you all that I think um, these chapters could have been pared down a bit. I didn't, I especially struggled with, um, I think it was 74. Uh, my reading comprehension on that one wasn't wasn't amazing. Um, even stuff like the Hollow Earth uh, section is really good. I liked it a lot. It's just not super fleshed out. You know, I could have used a chapter or two just of that um, instead of some of the more kind of arcane um stuff that we get into that's there's a lot of like historical names thrown at you in these chapters um and yeah it's a, it's a little bit bloated i would say uh there is some i mean there is some cool stuff like i said the hollow earth thing which i'm gonna i have some stuff planned to talk about with that um and then the ending the, it's like it's i love the ending of this book the last about page page and a half mm-hmm. um mm-hmm it doesn't really get much better than than that in my opinion i feel like it's it's i don't i don't know how else he could have ended this book uh it's not necessarily you know if you'd asked me how what what the final page of this book would read like would look like i wouldn't necessarily have told you that two minor characters would be talking to one another in a sort of flashback and that you know that doesn't like when you summarize it like that it doesn't sound appealing and it doesn't necessarily um 
it doesn't it doesn't summarize well but you know it's 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 really it's really good it's a really like emotional and sentimental ending that i think kind of sets the tone for everything that came before it in a lot of ways because you know people talk about how warm this book is how this book is a lot about family and friendship and fatherhood uh in in different ways and just kind of the experience of of being a man uh in terms of emotions and um connections to other people and stuff um i i i i you know, I'd, I'm not the biggest fan of this last section, like like y'all, but I can't think of a better way to, to end this book um, than two children kind of talking about the, the kind of mythical uh, nature of America, especially at that in that time period, mm-hmm. um, in a way that doesn't scan as at all. Like it's, it doesn't it doesn't read as like as super um, like it's not it's not belabored. It's not a. Uh, it's not, you know, like it, it doesn't seem like it's trying too hard, which, you know, pension can, can, can kind of come across like that at times. Uh, but it's very subtle. Um, it, I, I, this time reading, reading through it, I, it definitely made me think of the, how we've kind of traced pension's views on fatherhood and um, some of the kind of joke, like some of the jokes we've gone over as, as they relate to, um pensions possible like pensions relationship with his son and it definitely reminds me of it kind of makes me think that this whole book is half a love letter to richard farina and half a love letter to pension's son yeah i would i absolutely agree yeah I, I i agree with that completely and i i, I don't know i think that i don't i I'm going to say the controversial thing and say that I don't find this ending very satisfying. Like, I I think that the thematic intent of the ending is satisfying from a standpoint of, like, Mason himself has sort of broken this generational cycle with his children, and they are choosing to stick with him, and, and all of the stuff about America I think is very well-earned or very well encapsulated there. I don't know if the proper amount of, I don't know if maybe the term would be setup work is done for this to have the punch that you would want it to have. Um, because th- these characters re-enter the story sort of out of nowhere in these last four five chapters and then we spend a huge amount of time with them and at the very end are sort of expected to have this this very intense reaction to their final words like the spirit of what pinchon is doing i think is really there but because of how much of the bulk of this book deals specifically with mason and dixon i don't know if it was necessarily the best choice from a standpoint of ending this book in a satisfying manner to not have it end with Mason attending Dixon's funeral and then sort of choosing to find his his sort of next path in life. I don't I don't know. I I feel like that would have been potentially a more satisfying conclusion to what this book represented from the actual size of the material here and what it surrounds. Um I I certainly enjoyed the ending, but it didn't it did not feel the same way the book's like Lot 49 or Gravity's Rainbow or, you know, even Inherent Vice or Bleeding Edge feel 
in their ending. Um, I, I was I was hoping for something a bit more than I think what I got. So I, I'm 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 I want to dig into that a little bit more before we start covering the chapters themselves. Do you feel that it would have been a more satisfying and complete ending if it had ended at the scene where Mason visits Dixon's grave and, and just kind of left out those last, like, what is it? Four, four and a half pages. Yeah, I think so. I I think that that would have been the kind of, because this book is ultimately about Mason and Dixon, like all Mm -hmm. of the stuff that is present in the book in relation to Mason and his relationship with his children and all of that are, are there. And I don't want to say that they're not, and that Pinchon hasn't done the work to, to bring that to a conclusion. I feel like he did, but I feel like he did that in chapter 74, when Mason realizes the error of his ways and how he is creating this, or, or rather sustaining this curse between fathers and sons that runs in his family, and chooses to undo that by not taking another assignment to Dixon, choosing to go back home and choosing to actually involve himself with his kids again. I feel like that is the perfect conclusion to that whole subplot with Mason's character and his development over the course of the 700 pages. I feel like bringing that back around with them talking to each other in sort of the last days of Mason's life, I don't, I don't see how that would be a better ending to this book than the ending of the relationship between the two titular characters that I think would have, would make much more sense. Cause I feel like to, to my earlier point, I feel like Pinchon already closed out that thematic through line of Mason and his children. That's, I, I see where you're coming from. Um, it's I'm, I'm, and I'm not, I, I can't say that, I can't say you're wrong. Um, I mean, obviously it's, it's, it's an opinion and you know, there's no way to sit here and say it's, it's objectively <laughs> one thing or the other. Um, right. but you, you bring up a, a, a good point. Um, and it's, it's one that I think merits discussion and, um, you know, I, I, as much as I do love the, the last probably full page, if you were to, if you were to, you know, put it on the same page, the, the last little section of the book itself, I, I, I wouldn't want that changed at all. I do think those, uh-huh. that final little section there, um, is, is really beautifully done. And it's a, it's a great ending. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't object to that being the end right after Mason visits Dixon's grave. I, I, I do. I think there's an argument to be made there that that would probably be a more satisfying conclusion. Mm-hmm. But I think also it, um, because it'd be really, if anything, this, this section, th- this whole, you know, last transit section is, is almost like a coda to everything else. And so it, it parts of this, like Luke mentioned the hollow earth, all the hollow earth stuff. And I, I really liked those parts, but I really genuinely kind of felt like those could have been included. Like you could probably take parts of this ending and have put them elsewhere towards the end of part two. And it may have 
balanced that out a little bit more and, and made this last section a little bit thinner, but still managed to include some of those things. I know timeline wise, some of that couldn't have happened, but um, I don't know. It's, it's a real mixed bag for me with this, this last section. I, I feel like it's, it's a good conclusion, but not a perfect one. Yeah. It's, maybe I, it's perfectly flawed is, is maybe the best way I can. <laughs> It, you know what it reminds me of I was thinking of today is is the ending of Magnolia where mm-hmm. it's it you, this whole long you know it, that's a 3 hour and 15 minute movie and it's it builds it, it it's just steamrolling through the whole plot for the first probably 2 hours and 45 minutes and then the final part after the you know for anyone who hasn't seen it it you've had almost 20 years go watch it <laughs> after the frogs come down um it it feels like the movie slows down, but the ending speeds up. And while it does end on a good note, just like this does, like that final scene of Claudia looking at the camera and smiling is, I think, the perfect way to end that just as the last section of this, of chapter 78, is the perfect little ending for this. I do think that it that last act could have used some trimming and would have been a lot better if it had that. Yeah, or just in it maybe doesn't even necessarily need trimming, but maybe just rearranging. Because yeah, to, yeah, yeah. to your point, Cody, I think that those last couple pages and like that that closing dialogue between the children, like none of that is poorly written or ill conceived or anything like that. I just don't know if it if it functions with the impact he's hoping it does. Whereas, yeah, if it was if it was pushed up to being at Dixon's grave and kind of. Because if you if you set that whole scene at Dixon's grave, right, you've already established in chapter seventy four that Mason is moving on from his his large largely deficient parenting up to that point in his life, and that he's he's going to actually engage with his kids and try and be there for for them. If you set that scene at Dixon's gravesite, you have the true death of what for the last almost ten years has kept him from his children that being the character of Dixon. And then you have the decision from his kids then to also reaffirm themselves to him. And it's, I think it would work much better to the, the suggestion you had if they were, if they were taking place one in the same. And I feel like that would feel a bit more like probably what Pinchon was going for. And if you want to still include all the stuff with Benjamin Franklin and flat earth and all of the hollow earth, not flat earth. Um, <laughs> just move that up before before all of that um so yeah i i I don't know if necessarily and maybe maybe this is a case where it didn't need to be cut out but i feel like there is a way that it could be kept but rearranged for it to feel the way pinchon wants it to feel Mm. is is kind of my my last word on it i think luke do you have any any thoughts on this um not really. I mean, I don't. I don't necessarily disagree with you all like vehemently. Um, I don't. You know, it's not. It's not a perfect ending. Uh, it's not. You know, gravity's rainbow. Now everybody. Yeah. Um. Which I I think is probably Pynchon's best ending. Although I I'm kind of blanking on some of the how some of the other novels end. Um. I do like that there's a set you know, like in 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 Crying of Lot forty nine we don't necessarily get uh 
a lot. And I like this about that book, but we don't get a lot of um, resolution or there's not a lot of catharsis at the end. Mm -hmm. And I do think that the, uh, this book at least attempts to give the reader catharsis. That it does. Um, Yes, I definitely agree with that. Well, let's, um, we can come back to that maybe at the end, but for now let's, let's kind of dive into these chapters one at a time here. So starting with, with chapter 74, the, we, we kind of already touched on it a little bit, but I think the biggest part of this chapter is, uh, and, and which comes back around at the end, obviously is, is Mason's decision and, and realization that he doesn't want to follow in the father, in his father's footsteps and, and continue that cycle of, of, I, I hesitate to use the word neglect, but that's really what it is bordering on it. It's, you know, his father was emotionally neglectful and, and when he was there, he was emotionally abusive and manipulative. And, you know, Mason clearly sees that on uh, page 718 where he talks, you know, there's the paragraph, how could the elder Charles have forgiven Mason for leaving his children with his sister, dumping them really going off to the Indies with another man, another stargazer coming home only to turn about and sail off to America with the same man. Dixon sees the pattern, the expectation, the coming transit of Venus. Mason sees it too. If we went off a third time together, he hates me enough already. I study the stars against my father's wish, but do I remain among them only at the price of my sons? That is what I face. Some choice. So he declines the North Cape and another posting together symmetrically as ever to that end of the world lying opposite of their, their first end of the world. Someone must break this damned symmetry, Mason mutters. So he clearly sees, you know, what he's done. And I think he's, he has seen it, you know, when he left for America. He was struggling with that decision, but ultimately made the choice to go. And while I don't think he regrets that, I do think if he had, if he had chosen to go on that planned trip, that would have probably just been too much for him, too much for his family could have had you know devastating impact on them so he made what i would say for him for his character was definitely the right choice oh yeah completely and i think a lot of that is i think part of it is also coming from the catharsis of the previous chapters in which he's kind of finally realized that his mopery over rebecca is getting him nowhere and that now that he's sort of processed that, it really recalled the scenes from earlier in the book when he couldn't look at his son because he looked like Rebecca. And so yeah. I, I feel like there is also something in his decision to return that he he's finally gotten over Rebecca. He doesn't need Rebecca anymore, but he can still have Rebecca in his children that, that he's had with her which I feel like is is really well encapsulated by the ending in which it's the two children that he had with Rebecca who decide to stay with him. So I feel like there is also something to be said for the fact that he does this af- after he finally gets all of his, I'll say, melancholia out of his system that he's been affected by for so long with the passing of his first wife. Yeah, Mason, and this isn't something that we focused on really at all, and it's that's not actually, it's neither here nor there. But Mason definitely does exhibit, you know, pretty classic signs of uh, clinical depression. Um, mm-hmm. 
I would even perhaps go so far as to say that he, I mean, you know, I don't, he, I don't like doing this, especially to what amounts to fictional characters. Um, but, you know, I do myself have some experience with bipolar disorder and manic depression, and there are some perhaps aspects of, of that. I mean, seen through a modern lens, he keeps hearing his wife's, his dead wife's voice. He sees her ghost. Uh, if you were to tell that to a psychiatrist nowadays, um, you know, it, it you might get a diagnosis thrown on you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, he definitely, I mean, that's neither here nor there, I guess, in a lot of ways. But um, his depression is a pretty key aspect of his character. Um, and that definitely comes through at least some in these final chapters. I think it's, I think it's, it's stated that in his, in his last seven years, his, um, his melancholia didn't decrease. It only increased, uh, despite the fact that he got remarried and had a bunch of kids. Um, I don't necessarily know where I was going with that, but it, it is an interesting aspect of his character that he is so melancholic and so prone to depression. Uh, and yet he did, you know, he did accomplish, uh, a lot with his life as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a, that's a good point because as, um, you know, as someone who I myself, uh, was diagnosed with depression, um, a long time ago and it's, I think it's, it, it's portrayed pretty well in Mason. It's never really explicitly stated that that's his, his situation, but obviously that also was not a diagnosable condition at that time. Um, but he does clearly exhibit the symptoms. And I think what this particular part of his arc shows uh, about that is that it it depression doesn't really go away you just have to find ways to work with it and to um you know readjust your life to to allow yourself to do certain things and that's something i think mason throughout this book is is learning is that he at some point yes he does have to let go of rebecca and he whether or not he he remarries is totally up in the air for him, but he does have to allow himself to to let go of that and to stop letting it, you know, create such a burden on his life. And he does finally let go of it, but it's not necessarily, you know, it's it's not going to be this, you know, weight off my shoulders. The whole world is open to me now, kind of thing. It's more of just you know that part of it is gone, and he can move forward with his life despite still, you know, he's still going to have that melancholy. He's still going to have that, those times of sadness and, and, and depression and all that, but he at least made this big step. And that's something that I think would, was good for him as a character. Yeah, I agree. I really feel like this, the, the elements of chapter 74 provide a, a really great capstone to Mason as a, as a character. And I think that, it sort of is is half done in 74 and then the other half is done in 77 or 78 wherever it is that he has the shouting match with masculine where you kind of yeah. yeah where you have mason resolving his home life with rebecca in 74 78 you have him resolving his professional work and finally you know rising to defend himself albeit way too late in his life mm-hmm. that you sort of i think have one lead to the other that his absolute state of depression from the death of Bradley and the death of Rebecca and the loss of that house that they all lived in together and that period of his life and then not ever being chosen as Bradley's replacement, much less being admitted to the Royal Society. And then 
you know, getting what was kind of like crap work for so long. It, it, it you can see how that how that builds and builds and builds and leads him to be the, the melancholic person he is for most of this book. And then finally, when he he's able to resolve sort of the the seed germ of it, the loss of his of his family, he's able to to push forward and, and resolve the other portions of it as well, or at least do what he can to. Well, and the other thing that that stays with Mason is his the the realization of his complicity in, in a lot of the horrible things that went on um, in America, specifically the slavery. And that comes up in his dream um, right after the the mention of his of his decision to stay mm-hmm. where we see him you know having this this dream of going to um um god i just blanked on the name north is it north cape yeah yeah north cape and he's he sees this group of enslaved people and and he just you know does it is as unable to do anything other than just kind of observe it and so it's clear that it's still haunting him uh which is understandable because to witness those kind of atrocities would have to stay with someone you know yeah definitely well and especially given how much of it he has experienced now like between his time in in part one dealing with the slaves of the the dutch east india company and Mm -hmm. then all through america and the the horrors of it that they saw everywhere there and eventually leading to to dixon's outburst towards the end of the america section and there's probably part of him that was just hoping you know I'm away from that now. I'm in a place where I believe slavery was abolished in in the United Kingdom at this point. Like I'm away from where this is something that I should be seeing or experiencing. And then suddenly he just sees it again. And like that. Yeah, exactly. And that has to, to prompt some significant thoughts like the ones that he has. Yeah. And to go back to the Rebecca thing, um, something I wanted to, to bring up today was, you know, there does seem to be a recurring theme of of the absent uh, lover who the main character uh, seems to pine for um, or miss or, you know, the, the, the like, you know, person leaving a hole in somebody's life. Um, you know, in, in Lot 49, Oedipus spends the entire time basically obsessed with uh, her former lover, mm-hmm. Pierce, and uh, Vineland, Zoid repeatedly uh shows how he's not over his ex uh whose name I'm blanking on um Mason you know his Mason's perhaps defining characteristic in this book is is number 1 he's a astronomer and number 2 he really misses his dead wife um those are kind of the the two main character traits he, he carries through this entire book um even in inherent vice which I recently rewatched the movie the other day uh, Doc, you know, spends all this time searching for and helping his his ex girlfriend, who kind of dips in and out of the narrative and is absent through a lot of it, uh, and had mm-hmm. been absent for a long time. Um, which is interesting to think about. I do kind of wonder where that comes from. Uh, even for an author that we might know more about, I'm not sure that we would actually know where that would come from. But it does seem to be. A recurring theme for Pynchon. Um, I could probably pull out examples from other books as well, but um, I do find that interesting to think about that kind of through line through his work uh, of the the absent uh, romantic partner, the the romantic partner who leaves a hole in, in the in the main character's life. 
That's a good point. Um, and I, I'm wondering if I, I don't know that it would be something personal for him necessarily. Cause he'd, he's been married, I think since like 1990, at least around the time Vineland came out. I think it might've been early eighties. Yeah. Might've even been, yeah, earlier than that. It, it could just be that I, in all fairness, like that's just a good plot device. It's, it's a good way to, to motivate the main character and, and to kind of push them through the plot. So it could just be something as simple as that. Yeah. If you know how to write it, keep doing it. You know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. (laughs) Yeah. And then the other thing that I found was, I felt like this, this, uh, this was a very cathartic chapter for, for Mason. Um, and, but it also circled back around on, onto a lot of his, his struggles. And, and the other one that came up was the, the specific line on page 719 um, where he's talking about, you know, he he writes this really nice little blurb in his uh, for about the the bog, but then he mentions right after that masculine will edit this out, which is why Mason leaves it in his field report. So he's still struggling with Mason or with Mason with masculine, um, just you know, hovering over him and and continuing to assert his presence in his life and kind of stand in the way of his own success and interests. So I, I, you know, I can't help but feel bad for him because he just doesn't really seem to get, he, he can't catch a break. You know, the, yeah. the guy just gets, you know, all kinds of downer stuff thrown at him and he's doing the best he can. And then something like this comes along, which seems trivial, but it's, you know, for Mason, that's a huge thing. Well, and some of the, the funniest stuff in these chapters is all of the absurd things that Mason tries to put into his reports and letters that that like, and and just, I I don't know if it was necessarily purposeful, but it feels like Mason is continually trying to escalate the absurdity of the things that he's saying, just because he knows that masculine is going to have to address it with him. And it's, it's almost like him getting some kind of power back in that relationship that he's forcing this guy that he, he, let's just be honest, kind of hates to mm-hmm. have to read out these absurd things that he's writing in for the purpose of having them edited out. Like every time we return to that motif or joke or whatever you'd want to call it by, it always made me laugh so hard. Like the actual quotations that are in there. Some of them yeah. are truly crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it It makes me wonder if that is... You know, I, as we've mentioned before, I think there are so many little just authorial self-inserts throughout this book. And I, I have to wonder if that's, you know, if Pinchon has done similar things where he just puts these outlandish parts or, or lines in his books just to kind of poke his editor. Mm-hmm. Well, especially if I don't remember who brought up this idea, but especially if sort of Mason and Dixon also sort of represents the creation process of a novel then this would certainly be another piece of like supplementary evidence to support that idea with of the, of the editing process mm-hmm. of yeah. someone looking at your, your work or your novel and be like, yeah, you can't print this. <laughs> like, this, this is, there's no way that this will fly, <laughs> which I wish I had been proactive and taken down those quotations. Cause they're so funny. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know that I actually highlighted them. I just remember chuckling at them when I was reading them. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and so going back to the idea of uh, the authorial self-insert, um, I, I couldn't help but feel that the mention on page 720 about Maskelin's letter and, and or his response letter to Mason and the fact that none of Mason's letters could ever be located um, was... And that was an interesting section because you have, you know, the, the mention of it and then there's the line, make something up then Munchausen would, which I, I just, I love that line and that inclusion of, of Baron Munchausen in there. Um, but that really, you could kind of see that as, you know, Pinchon's taken essentially Mason's journal and used that as a very rough kind of outline. And then from that, just filled out this this whole fleshed out this whole story, this whole world where he really can do just about anything because there's so little to actually, you know, historically to go off of that, you know, he can pepper in these, these stories and these events and all these kind of things that, you know, you can say happen and you can frame it as, you know, Cherry Coke's telling the story where he's the one telling the story. And, you know, we go back to the frame and the frame and the frame and the frame kind of thing. And I, I just felt like this was another one of those little nods of like, yeah, I'm, basically just having fun with history and, and just kind of filling in these gaps that I have the ability to fill in. Yeah. And I think it, you know, I think it also speaks to the broader point about how we arrive at the understanding of history that we have in, you know, it's obviously that's a big thematic point of the book overall is this is, you know, a fictionalized version of a real thing. And yet within the fictionalized version, you have a man narrating events he wasn't there for and may or may mm -hmm. not be sensationalizing them and then it also crosses over with literal in-universe fiction in the ghastly fob section so like obviously pinchon is doing a lot of work there but he's also bringing in something from the real world these missing letters that probably are truly missing like we we don't have much on either of these people we have mason's journal from the drawing of the line but not much else um so I think it's just another additional sort of acknowledgement that, you know, if we had all of this information, maybe your understanding would be different, but it's been quote unquote lost, whether or not that was on purpose or on accident. Right. And so now we are, we are stuck with the version of things that we have, you know, maybe Mason acknowledged the existence of a mechanical duck somewhere in his letters. <laughs> Maybe and that's so why they then... had to hide them. We weren't ready for that technology yet. Exactly. <laughs> then we, we would have potentially an entirely different reading of how that story comes to, yeah. to, to conclude in these chapters. <laughs> well, speaking of, of the mechanical duck, we do get one last scene with Armand. Mm -hmm. And... I, I wanted to get y'all's opinion on this with the way that Armand is described. Um, it's, you know, the, uh, tis the very Frenchman, is it not? Yet, why then is his figure illuminated so much less than everything else about this time of day? Why is he moving so smoothly as a, uh, as a boat upon still water, looming ever closer, aiming, it now becomes apparent, a kiss at Mason's cheek, his color at close range aberrating toward green as he sweeps in a cold wind upon and past the shivering mason with an echo like an odor trailing after do you think it's i i kind of took it as you know just this sort of i guess melancholy of of having lost the duck and which mm -hmm. had kind of become his whole you know, he kind of built his life around that in a way yeah um, they mate for life cody yeah the ducks i know <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's it's 
it, and that's that's another thing I wanted to, to to bring up is the the inclusion of some of these these characters that come back with Armand, and then later we have uh, potentially Fang comes back through. Um, we get the return of Masculine. Do y'all feel that these inclusions were natural, or did they feel kind of um, forced in? Mm. It, that, so that's a, a good question. I I don't think I necessarily saw them as forced. I think I saw them as a delineation between the world that Mason and Dixon came from and the world that Mason and Dixon went into in America as this idea that they are sort of two separate places, um, not just from a standpoint of like geography, but also from a, a thematic perspective. This idea that when they're out in this sort of Edenic wilderness that is full of, you know, perfect verdant hills and these beautiful landscapes and has been untouched by modernity past a certain point where the colonies have spread, you don't have connections to the elements of the modern world from where you came. The Royal Society doesn't have a grip on you. Masculine can write letters or maybe send instruments, as he does towards the end of their time in America, which is based on real history. But largely, you're not connected to that anymore because you're, you're away from it. And same thing would be the case with, with like, Fang. You know, there's, there's a dog that they assume can talk, but that they're not able to confirm while they're there. They kind of just assume that this dog can also talk but then you know to your point as soon as you step back into that world in these last you know because really 74 they're still in america for a portion of it so 75 76 77 and 78 you've returned to that world and now all of a sudden all this stuff is here again these these evolutionary characteristics in dogs this you know all-seeing eye of the royal society and it's constantly hounding mason again and masculine is is potentially abusing his position as astronomer royal that he may or may not have come by dishonestly so i i think it it almost is supposed to mark that shift from returning from this this sort of paradise back into something that is inherently more complicated and probably less desirable yeah, I I totally agree. I I I can see how people might come away thinking that those those characters coming back feels a little bit shoehorned, but I I think honestly it if it, it, they they make sense. Their appearances in these in these chapters occur naturally. I I think you you could make the argument that Fang isn't really even Fang. At this point, they just think any dog that they come across can talk. <laughs> so you know, and we never really, it's, I don't think it, I, I correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think it's explicitly stated that it's Fang. It's just implied no. that it is. And they certainly yeah. think it is. Um, so, you know, and then Armand has just kind of popped up everywhere. You know, he's almost anytime there's a scene where there's yeah. a kitchen in, in there, Armand he's is spreading is the there. gospel of those sandwiches. That's right. <laughs> And I do love when he reappears that he almost kind of is described as pouncing out of nowhere at Mason once he sees him again. Yeah, just, yeah. It's just overjoyed to see this man again. 
Like, um, uh, it reminds me of, of Calvin and Hobbes whenever Calvin comes home and Hobbes is hiding somewhere. Yeah. Just comes on him. That's a great analog. I, I did a little bit of research on bog bursts. I don't know if y'all um, knew what those were. I had no idea. The, so the link on the Pinchon wiki is, is broken for that particular definition, so I had to go and, um, and Google it. It's basically a landslide, but it is... And I thought this was interesting that that it's a specifically it's a bog burst because bog bursts are considered more often to be caused by human activity. So rather than a landslide, which is often caused by natural forces, you know, heavy rains or or just the the land shifting or anything like that, these are specifically caused by building, by excavation or peat harvesting. So it kind of ties it into the the general theme of how you know by doing everything that that we have done we being not just mason and dixon but everybody who interacts with the land in any way shape or form it kind of ties back into that of you know this is this is a man-made occurrence and this this event has happened because of human activity so even coming back to to the uk you know he's he's still not getting away from the impact that that he's having on on the land. not to say that he specifically did it but Well, I mean, and that is also reinforced by Rebecca coming and speaking to him, where mm-hmm. she's like, you, you think you found their sacred well, I think is of yeah, what it is. Yeah, holy well, I think. Holy well. Holy, holy well, well? Yes. yeah. Um, but it, it, she says in reality, it's just a, like, imitation of it. This yeah. idea that, like, they did cause, yeah, they, they, they caused this thing to happen. And everybody is sort of amazed at the outflow that it, that it has, but ultimately it isn't it isn't anything more than human interference. To your point, mm-hmm. Cody, um, which continues to to build on these themes that Pinchon has been orbiting in of sort of human intervention and destruction of land and all of that. And now it's being confirmed by someone who lives in the spirit realm. <laughs> if Rebecca, <Yeah. laughs> if Rebecca is literally a ghost instead of just sort of um, his brain's processing of of loss. So it, it yeah, I, I think I think you're exactly on the money there as far as that means. On the uh, on the subject of holy wells, I did want to. This is a bit of an aside, but I recently read. M. John Harrison's uh, The Sunken Land Begins to Rise Again, um, which is a really good novel, I think from 2020, that I, it, it, it reads like a pension novel, but like written by, say, like Joseph McElroy or J.G. Ballard. Um, Interesting. Yeah, it's it's about like these two different characters who are both like on the edge of this really, really odd conspiracy. Um and uh, they're not, you know, it's, it's a very, like, understated, but it does have a lot to do with, like, British folklore and uh, Brexit and stuff like that. But there are there is the concept, like, the Holy Well thing kind of comes up in that there are, like, um, some, like, supernatural happenings involving uh, water and, like, swamps in England occur. And there's kind of, because the Pension Wiki describes the Holy, Holy Well as, like, a... Uh, a piece of water or, or a section of uh, uh, some type of water that is important to local folklore. And that, that definitely does come up in the, in that book, uh, which I do highly recommend that book. I also read his read M. John Harrison's other book light, which I think is probably 
top 10 novels I've ever read. Um, so he comes highly recommended for me at least, but yeah, that, that, that does come up in that book. That's interesting. I might have to check that one out. Yeah. I know M. John Harrison wrote some science fiction books that have gotten included in like the, the SF essentials imprint. So that was mainly the work that I knew him for, but that sounds like a very interesting book. The other thing I wanted to bring up, or the rather, I guess the the last thing I wanted to bring up for chapter seventy four is the I wanted to get y'all's opinions on the rivalry between Masculine and Mason. Um, yeah, we have uh, Cherry Coke is is kind of described as seeing it as as he refers to it as brotherly, which I think <laughs> is a good term, but I don't know if it's the right one. No, uh, and then Euphrenia definitely sees it as being more nefarious, uh, which is where I, I land on on that side of it. I, I definitely think Masculine is really using his his power and his his clout to uh, kind of lord over Mason as much as possible. <clears throat> Excuse me, as much as possible. Yeah, I, I think Mason has maybe a brotherly relationship with Cherry Coke, or you know, certainly yeah. certainly Dixon. Um, Absolutely. But, you know, I, I would say that the relationship between Masculine and Mason is is anything but brotherly. I I would be very interested if there was any chapters considered for inclusion here that that show the relationship from Masculine's perspective, because I feel like it would be very different from Mason. Oh, for like, sure. I, I think that he would view Mason more as a, like his young ward so to speak that he's trying to like <laughs> help increase the capabilities of and like make into a better astronomer but it's very clear that that mason hates him like yeah. not just not just from a standpoint of his very explicit words about him when they're they're doing the the survey at the beginning of the book but also everything in these chapters and and everything about Mason's character would really go to to speak that masculine is someone that he started hating when he was given the position of astronomer royal because mm-hmm. you know it was probably just sort of an uneasy dislike prior to that like oh that guy's kind of weird i don't really like spending time with him he's kind of crazy he seems maybe kind of stuck up cuz he's related to Clive of India but once you know once they gave him Bradley's job, I think that's when that's when Mason sort of really really turned into the 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 hater of masculine that he is by the end of the book. But I don't think yeah. like 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 I had already said, I don't think that would be reflected in masculine's opinion of him because when they have their confrontation in seventy eight, you can see that masculine's very hurt by that because he turns it says specifically he turns away from Mason and for the first time ever he did not turn back. So it's, it's, it's clear that they have different opinions of each other, but certainly from Mason's perspective, no, I don't think there's any brotherly love or any other yeah, kind yeah. of love that is present there. And that's, what's weird to me is that Cherry Cook ostensibly has been telling the story the whole time. Mm-hmm. And he, like when he asks, when he, when he says that, you know, he sees it as brother, like, where do you get off even thinking that? Like, you know <laughs> how this has gone down. Like you're the one telling the story here. Right. You know this is anything but that. Like so, yeah. I don't. I don't. I thought that was interesting. I I have to wonder if it's just Cherry Coke trying to be, uh, more genial and and not knock someone of of authority. I guess in a way, some just but, leftover Christian 
upbringing. Yeah, like, yeah, whatever little. You shouldn't hate bits. anybody. <laughs> yeah. Um, or it could certainly just be Pinchon continuing to develop this idea of, you know, the people who tell history rarely have it correct. Because you're, yeah. you're in this position where Cherry Coke, to, to your point, Cody, has been telling the story the whole time. Everything that we have read is ostensibly from his lips. So therefore, for him to come away with the wrong perspective, it could just be, yeah, more, more of Pinchon saying, see, even the people who tell us what our history is really have no fucking clue what they're talking about. <laughs> no. It was like that. Uh, yeah, it does seem to be a recurring theme in this book. Theme, thing, maybe not a theme, but a recurring plot point. Um, you know, as as I think I went over and Cody, I think confirmed this, and other maybe Kate did too. That you know how frustrating it would be it is, and to see somebody who is more or less your equal, or somebody that you think that you might even be better than, succeed in in a in a field that you yourself are in. Um, I did find him yelling at masculine off-putting, although. Because uh, masculine comes across as such a like, um, kind of he's a kind of a comedic character. He, I, I have trouble taking masculine seriously, um, <laughs> especially at the end, like where he's like wearing a wizard's robe or something. <laughs> you know, like he has stars on his on his robe. He's you know? just like Mickey Mouse from Fantasia. Yeah, yeah. that's what, that's that's the exact <laughs> mental picture I got. Like you know, what I'm saying like he, he just seems like some idiot yeah. that. That through <laughs> through familial connections and luck, you know, just got ahead of Mason and stayed there. Yeah, um, he's a nepo baby. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not necessarily his fault. I I don't I I've had trouble t- taking him seriously throughout the book. Um, yeah, I, I don't I, think I, you're supposed to. Yeah, and especially yeah. At the, here at the end with with the description of of his clothes. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> That being said, I mean, it is kind of off-putting for Mason. It kind of makes Mason come across as, like, you know, kids get off my lawn type old guy. Um, that being said, I mean, it is, it is, you know, it does seem to be a long time coming. And I do, I do think that, you know, Mason, I, I can, I could see myself having a similar reaction to somebody who, uh, for years and years and years, probably you know, I, I imagine masculine probably acted like he was better than Mason, although that's never stated or really in there. Um, he comes off that way. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, you know, I'm only I'm in my mid you know, early to mid 30s. You know, there I do have some. Some frustration with with people I know that are in similar fields, you know, in, in writing specifically who have gotten more success than I have. Um, that in not I don't have the type of rivalry with any of them that Mason does have with, with masculine. But if I did, I could see myself at, at at an old age, perhaps letting the letting the anger boil over and and uh, turn into real conflict. Um, you know, I I don't necessarily know what it's like to have a lifetime of of that kind of shit put on you. Um, and that kind of a lifetime of, of more or less disappointment, um, in terms of professional advancement. Um, so I do find it understandable. It's just, it doesn't, it doesn't reflect well on it. It doesn't, it doesn't make Mason a more sympathetic character to me. It makes him a less sympathetic character. 
I see where you're coming from. I, I think it's more to take Mason's side on it. I think it's not just the fact that someone else is getting the success that he feels is deserved. It's, it's that it's someone like masculine. It's this goddamn wizard boy who, you know, by all means should not have it and doesn't really seem to fully grasp what he has um, outside of the fact that he knows it's a powerful position. And so that's, you know, he kind of, you know, hams it up and lords it over him. But I don't, I I don't necessarily, yeah, I I don't think masculine is doing it intentionally. I think he's just aloof and unaware that it's in bad form to act the way he acts. I I just think he doesn't see it as a problem. You know, he's yeah. just being, I know people like that. And that's, I, I think that's where it's like, I, I see where Mason's coming from. Cause it's, it sucks, you know, especially when you really kind of know you can't do anything about it or you shouldn't. And it just builds up for a long time. Well, and I think Mason too would even be fine with masculine being the, the astronomer Royal. If Bradley hadn't been, like if mm-hmm. if Bradley hadn't been the astronomer royal, and if they had not had the relationship that they had had, and if Mason had not been as you know invested in the the observations that he'll never have a chance to to get his credit on and like fully elucidate for everybody, I think maybe he would be able to swallow the fact that this total doofus has been put into the position. But because the last person to hold that chair was like, you know, this person incredibly close to him, and who he had studied under with the connotation that maybe he would be the next one selected combined with masculine telling him ah the royal society's not what it used to be it's just you know these these quote-unquote scientific people and then the other half is macaronis and like just denigrate so it's i think it's the combination of him denigrating the royal society denying mason entrance to the royal society year after year um, the fact that he took over the chair after his closest friend, that kind of a, an outburst. I think that if you didn't have all three of them, um, perhaps Mason could just sort of swallow his pride and kind of deal with it. So yeah, I th- it's yeah. And I, I salt think on once, a wound. Yeah, and I, I think that once that scene happened where he finally kind of broke his reserve and and let masculine have it like it released a tension that i didn't necessarily feel was there until that moment where i was like oh yeah this has been like an undercurrent through most of the book and mason has never really done anything to defend himself or his friend's memory or the institution or whatever term you want to apply to it he just kind of constantly put his head down and said like yes sir no sir um and that that wall kind of maybe it was just the fucking wizard rope like he just sobbed in that and he's like this <laughs> is it. this is the last straw i can't deal with this anymore just red flashes in his eyes and... <laughs> oh man i'm now i can't get that image out of my head it also makes that scene so much more ridiculous too there is he's verbally assaulting a man dressed like mickey mouse and then that guy turns to face the other direction and doesn't turn around uh, oh man okay <laughs> Um, anything else we want to go over in 74? Oh, 
nothing comes to mind. Okay. <laughs> um. So, hold on. <laughs> Second. Oh God. It's so absurd. It is. Okay. So seventy-five. Um, I don't really have too much on this chapter. The one, the well, the first thing I wanted to bring up. I do love the scene where uh, Dixon starts explaining about the his journey to the North Pole and his discovery of the Hollow Earth, yeah. and how Mason gets immediately uncomfortable. Um. <laughs> Where it says, as Mason shifts uncomfortably and looks about for something to smoke or eat. Um, and then later, Mason sits rhythmically inserting into his face an assortment of Meg Bland's cookies, tarts, and muffins, pretending to be silent by choice, lest any phrase emerge too uh, farinaceously inflected. Just, as someone who's been in those kind of conversations where I'm listening to someone talk about something that I just think is absolutely crazy, but I have to just kind of like grin and bear it, like that scene is is hilarious to me. Just the uncomfortable looking around trying to figure out what to do. And the only thing you can do is just put things into your mouth. So you don't say something that you're going to regret saying. Yeah. Uh, Dixon just started playing heroin at Mason while staring at him. Thank you you for bringing that memory back to me. Oh God. So that's a reference to an episode a long time ago. Yeah. (laughs) Jeez, I'm gonna have nightmares about that situation. Maybe that's why I have trouble talking to people now. <laughs> Maybe that just sapped your ability it just, to. Yeah, it just took everything out of me. Um, so the the right after that, um, this is something I thought was interesting, and I wanted to get y'all's opinion on it. The Pension Wiki uh, puts out this theory that Squire Halligast may be an expatriate of the Hollow Earth. And they're basing that on um, the last, I guess, paragraph or so of of page 739. Um, I'm not really sure how I feel about that, if there's really enough to say he is or isn't. Yeah, that feels a bit grasping at straws to me. There's a part later in... I want to say it's 77, maybe 78, um, where Benjamin Franklin's assistant um, is described as gnomish. I think that presents more of an argument that he's from the Hollow mm-hmm. Earth. I don't think there's anything... I, I can't recall anything off the top of my head that would put Halligast as coming from Middle Earth... or Middle Earth, Jesus, I've been reading too much Tolkien. Uh, from ho- the Hollow Earth. Um, if If any listeners have anything that they you know if you agree with this i would love to know where that is um because the the wiki doesn't provide any any they link to like page 470 something but i went back and read that whole page and the pages around it and i couldn't i still couldn't come upon how they got to that that idea can't say anything comes to mind at all i mean i i think it's enough that stig is from the hollow earth that to would, also, yeah that to also say that like these other kind of weird offbeat characters must also be from there i don't know that feels that feels like you're trying to force something there 
Because all like if Squire Halagas was from the Hollow Earth, like what would that what would that add? Right. Or or, or uh, you know affect his character in any way? Like I do anything. If anything else, it would make no sense why he would have all of his thoughts about the magical stuff that he sees on the surface because from there. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, but I'm curious if anybody knows or not knows, but if anybody feels that that's the case, please uh, send us something. I, I, I would love to hear an argument for that. What did we think about the Hollow Earth stuff in general as it's included? I, I rather liked it, um, and it's so. Uh, just for context for our listeners, I was I was actually in Philadelphia this past weekend. And, um, I don't, I don't like flying. So I, my go-to book whenever I have flown recently has been against the day. So I took that with me and got through about the first 200 pages, which, uh, that really heavily deals with the hollow earth in that book. Um, so it was interesting to have that, that parallel between the two, because they kind of, they both have entrances, uh, in, in the North pole. It's way more fleshed out in Against the Day, um, but it's very similar to how it's presented in Mason and Dixon. And I do, some of my favorite just prose from these chapters um, is is tied to that description of, of the Hollow Earth. I really like the way that it's described and the, the kind of um, curiosity of, of how one would adapt to living in uh, the the the. Dynamic between you know living in the the convex versus the concave, and shifting that that kind of perspective around is just a really fascinating kind of thought experiment. But it's it's one of those things where I kind of that's one of the parts of the book that I wish was a little bit more fleshed out. But then I think that if that was, it would aside from feeling unnecessary, it would probably take away from the sort of magic of it, and which I think is necessary to kind of push that that concept and that theme of the the magic of the untouched parts of the earth so to make to make that a more concise statement i really liked it it's some of the best writing in these chapters and i wish there was more of it but i don't one thing that uh, struck me about that that i've been thinking about today um about the hollow earth section is that um the pension wiki links the guy who guided Dixon into the hollow earth. Um, the, the pension wiki implies, or I think states that he could be an alien or that he has alien like qualities. Um, which I have a few things I wanted to say about that. Um, the hollow earth, it does, it did remind me of the book of the long sun by Gene Wolfe, um, which features like a, a circular spaceship, um, that like when you look in the sky, you can like, see a, a distant city uh, on the same spaceship as you, um, which is a, is a similar kind of feel to the hollow earth in this, in this book. And those, the, the book of the long sun books would have come out. Uh, I think the final one would have come out around the time Mason Dixon came out, um, which I find interesting. And I really love those books. Uh, the solar cycle, in my opinion, just gets better and better as you the deeper into it, you get, uh, but the Book of the Long Sun, the the spaceship on that that I'm talking about with the look in the sky and the sky is um, a distant part of the 
same general structure is uh the people interpret the book of the long sun um spaceship as being a dyson sphere uh which i'm pretty sure that's what it is a dyson sphere which i think is also featured in interstellar i want to say the end of interstellar Mm -hmm. um but so the fact that the pension wiki links the 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 guide the person who leads him there with the alien is interesting uh, there are some kind of aspects of, and I do think that this could be some type of weird, if you kind of really put on your Pepe Silva or whatever that is, that meme is, uh, if you do like the, the Charlie from Philadelphia, it's always sunny, uh, meme thing, uh, you could, you know, you can make this whole argument that it's about alien abduction and that he was really on a spaceship, a vast spaceship, um, which some of the dialogue kind of negates that. But there is, there is, you know, Mason at one point um, says, like, interjects when Dixon is telling the story. Uh, Mason says, you know, that you can remember, which seems to imply to me uh, the of alien abduction. Um, this is a bit of a tangent, but I, I have met one person who claims to have been abducted by aliens. Um, it was a hitchhiker I picked up when I was in college and going through a really heavy beat generation phase. So I thought it was like the cool thing to do to pick up hitchhikers and have them tell me their, their life story. I only did it like once or twice, but this old dude was talking about how he had uh, been abducted by aliens in California in the seventies. Um, and they had wiped his memory of, of the abduction. Um, that's a pretty small part of that section, the the Mason interjecting that the the phrase that you can remember. Mm-hmm. Um but I, I do think that that's in there. Um that that is meant to be you're supposed to kind of maybe be reminded of, of those kind of stories. Um and I do think that there is a possible aspect of, of alien abduction and kind of the general obsession with UFOs since since the nineteen fifties. Um that's definitely a big aspect of the counterculture. Um, kind of sneaky big aspect of the counterculture in America for the last about 70 years. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah, and I, I do think that's... I, I personally at least think that that's in there. I'm not 100%, but I I would be surprised if 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 when Pynchon was... You know, he's never going to be interviewed, but if if somebody <laughs> didn't interview with him and brought that up, I would be surprised if he if he dismissed it as as completely false. He could come on our show anytime. I'm yeah, just saying he's got a standing invitation. invitation. <laughs> um, no, that's a good. That's a good argument. Yeah, and I think I think I don't know if you clocked it, uh, Luke, but uh, Pinchon makes another reference to the process of turning from a journeyman into a master again in these four chapters. I don't remember what chapter it was in. Oh, uh, but... I do remember that. I didn't. I didn't pick up on that being a a new son reference, but yeah. Yeah, so and that was present, uh, like we mentioned earlier in um, in the book as well in in an episode from several months ago. Um, so I mean, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if there was at least some inspiration there. I think it's pretty clear that that Pinchon read Wolf and probably found his books uh, interesting. Um, but I, yeah, I, I think I think the 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 Hollow Earth stuff is is really interesting. This book, obviously, as I now know from reading the far article. It does crop back up and um, against the day, and I think it's you know it's it's one of the few cases. Pinchon is very explicitly explaining what he's doing because there's the line that Dixon, 
you know, with, with every long line of latitude and longitude that we map out, the opening gets smaller. Properly mapped out, the entirety of the world cease to exist. Everything there will die. So it, it, it uh, you know, it's one case where he's not necessarily hiding the ball, so to speak, about what he's including this for. It's certainly mm-hmm. a further elucidation of the stuff that, that Will was the one who said it, where we take away the, the je ne sais quoi of it all. We lose some aspect of the world or, or the inherent magic of untapped resources. 76, I, th- I want to say, is the shortest chapter in here. It is, yeah. It's the, and, it's yeah. the Scotland thing. Yeah. I don't really have too much. Um, it's, I mean, it, this is really just kind of the, the section where we have the, the meeting with Mason and, and Samuel Johnson and James Boswell. Um, it was a fine chapter. It's, I don't really have much to say on it. Unfortunately I did. I really enjoyed the last paragraph of it. Um, the Mason will go back to uh, waking day after day in Sapperton, piecing together odd cash jobs for the Royal Society, reductions for Masculine's Almanac, small children everywhere, a neat observatory out in the garden, a reputation in the Golden Valley as a sorcerer, apprentice, who once climbed that strange eminence at, Green, at Greenwich up into another level of power, sailed to all parts of the globe, but came back down among them. Again, they will, say, uh, they will be easy with him, call him Charlie at last. Another small town eccentric absorbed back into the weavery, keeping a workspace fitted out someplace in the back of some long Cotswold house, down a chain of rooms back from the lane and out onto the crooked looming of those hillside fields. Oh, that was a great ending to that chapter. Um, but other than that, I really truly just don't have much to go over on this particular chapter. Yeah, no, I didn't either. I was somewhat confused by the... I think it's this chapter where the, there's a... A reference to cannibalism as it relates to Scotland. Um, I want to say it's in there. that, uh, And I didn't necessarily understand that. Uh, and the Pension Wiki doesn't have any explainers. Um, maybe we'll have to ask Brett uh, if he has anything on it. But I, did, I was somewhat confused by, by that reference. Do you have the quote? I have looking um, for it now. Let me, let me get my book one second. While Luke's looking for that, I did forget that there was a pretty good part in here where they dunk on Cherry Coke again. Where I had my Boswell. I had my Boswell once. Mason told Mason tells Boswell, Dixon and I, we had a joint Boswell, preacher named Cherry Coke, scribbling everything down just like you, sir. Have you, Torley's hand and ellipses, you know, ever had one yourself if I'm not prying? Uh, and it's just like these these dunks on cherry coke are just so much better when we remember that he's again he's telling the story and he's choosing to include these times where they're just shitting all over him or could be just making them up which would be even crazier (laughs) it's a the it's on uh uh sorry it's on a 745 um Soon he will commence with the cannibalism jokes. Pray you miss mm. it not. Tis more hilarious than may at first seem likely. I didn't know if there okay. was some example of, of people from Scotland like doing cannibalism at some point. I don't know if it maybe even goes back to the Romans or something. I don't know. The first thing that comes up if you just consult Google 
is a Wikipedia article about someone named Sonny Bean, where it says Alexander Sonny Bean was said to be the head of a 45-member clan in Scotland in the 16th century that murdered and cannibalized over a thousand people in 20 years. Holy shit. According to legend, Bean and his clan members were eventually caught by a certain sent by King James VI and ex- executed for their heinous crimes. Yeah, that'll probably be it. I mean, it fits the time okay. period. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because King James the sixth would have been uh, a little bit beforehand, maybe. Yeah, he died in sixteen twenty-five. So certainly beforehand, but um, if for some reason that had innervated into the culture as as a as a joke. But yeah, a thousand people in twenty five years. It's per that's prolific. Yeah. That's well, moving on to chapter seventy seven. This is the chapter as much as seventy eight emotionally was, was heavy, seventy seven got me more than than seventy eight. Um mm-hmm. I think the combination of Dixon's Dixon's dream, the two of, of them doing their little song and dance routine is just so wholesome and just really sweet. And the song is great. Um, it's, it just really is such a nice sort of almost like a cap on, on their time together. And this is how Dixon's kind of romanticizing or idealizing their relationship is that this is, they kind of go out on this, you know, showman's note, you know, or they're just having a good time up on stage and entertaining other people and, um, and just enjoying each other's presence and company. Um, and then you couple that with Dixon knowing that he's, he's going to die soon, like Mm -hmm. openly understanding that this is going to happen. And then, the end of the chapter with their, their fishing together is, I mean, it, it's wonderful. And it really just, that's the part that really wrecked me. Just knowing what was coming and, and seeing them spend these last, I don't know, days together, however long um, they, they had together. And just, I, I, I think this, this chapter, I think, really summarizes i i think the the whole i'm i'm stumbling over my words here i'm trying to think of how i want to phrase this like it really it really relationship, and it really this is the, i think the the perfect way to to say goodbye to these two even though we don't we're not really saying goodbye to them just yet i think this is that nice um final scene of them together that's been in anything that he's ever read and while i don't have experience with that firsthand certainly popular culture would say that like it takes a long time for for male friends to admit to each other that they like each other and become sincere um sadly that's true i mean yeah and so getting getting to see that happen was really it, it was very emotionally 
the earnestness that the two of them have towards each other is such a sudden change and it it feels well earned and it feels there's a, but there's also a sadness to it that they don't have more time together and that they oh, couldn't yeah. have that they couldn't have been more honest with one another you know prior to this happening yeah i th- i think that's probably the most heartbreaking part of all of this is that they've spent years together at this point yeah and it it's taken them that long to to be able to really and they don't it's not even that they articulate it because there's that there's a scene earlier in i don't remember what chapter it is off the top of my head now but where there's just a real brief part where Mason puts his hand on Dixon's shoulder and it's like that's like the first time they've ever been that physically close with each other mm-hmm. and it it only lasts for a moment and then it's gone and i it's you know, as you mentioned it's that's that is really and truly a societal thing and and i i hate that it is but there's always been this kind of stigma that that men cannot have a a platonic love for each other that you know, we're we're supposed to be above that we're supposed to you know be you know have this tough facade that we wear all the time and and not show our emotions and it it sucks because you, these two really truly care each, we care about each other but they just neither of them really feels like they can show it until years later and they're both about to die yeah and even then it's, you know, they're not really explicitly saying anything. It's just shown through their actions, time together. But it's shown beautifully. Think, yeah. And I think the other thing that's additionally sad is like Mason wouldn't have gone and seen him without Masculine more or less forcing him to do yeah. it. Yeah. Which is another case where Masculine probably views their relationship significantly differently than, than Mason does. Because Mason wasn't going to and, and Masculine basically said like, oh, I put another day on your itinerary dixon because you'll be going through that area and then he goes oh no i can just keep going oh you should stop <laughs> like, like he, he essentially <laughs> forces him to go speak to dixon and then dixon more or less stay at it just continuing on so even even though that is how they feel about each other it still requires outside to push mason to to engage and mm-hmm. it isn't until mason realizes time he probably he is more willing to admit that he wants to see him it's just a it's a really touching conclusion to their their time together and i would be lying if i said it didn't make me cry a little it's just very yeah Um, i I agree luke did you have anything you wanted to add on on 77 uh not really i mean it is it is an enjoyable chapter um like i i liked what y'all said about the friendship thing and the uh i i hate musicals in general uh with very, <laughs> oh, i do too i'm right there few, with you yeah with very few exceptions but it was kind of fun to picture mason and dixon performing that song on stage um it was just kind of a fun mental image um for me yeah, I didn't. It. I'm, I'm with you on the musical thing. I think to me that read more as like the old comedy duos of the like the 30s and 40s, 
um, where they would have musical numbers in there every now and then. And usually they would, their, their set would finish with like a musical number that wasn't really necessarily funny, but it was more just like a sweet kind of song to end on. Um, but either way, it's, it, it's a good song. I think it's probably one of the better songs in the book. Um, but yeah, I really liked it. Can so I ask on... what the exceptions are to Luke's musicals oh. that he likes? Um, I'm curious because I have like I can probably name three musicals I like. <laughs> so I'm and I'm curious if any of them are the same ones I have. Some like it hot is the main one I was thinking of. Okay. I I, okay. I actually enjoyed that movie a fair amount. Um pretty much it. Uh yeah. Okay. That's interesting because the one aside from one of mine, the other two, I would, I would think it's a bit of a stretch to call them musicals, but, um, I really liked if this is going to be an obscure one. If anybody's a South Park fan, Cannibal the Musical was really funny and really good. <laughs> um, I I counted as musical because it's in the title. Um, and the other one is is the South Park movie. Um, also, I consider that a musical. And then Hamilton, I genuinely love Hamilton. Um, <laughs> I do. I do. My family got me onto that a few years ago, and it's it, that's our Fourth of July thing every year. It's it's every it's year. It's 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 what we do. Okay, that's our thing. Yeah. So those are mine. Other than that, I can't like I can suspend my disbelief for really just about anything, but I cannot do it. I I just can't have a group of people burst into choreographed song and dance. I just, as, as a musician, I know too many people and I know large groups of people cannot keep time. So I sincerely cannot believe that they can sing in key together on time while dancing. Just doesn't, doesn't work for me. Gotcha. But that's, yeah. I, I would be the odd one out and then I do enjoy musicals. All right. I mean, to each their own. I'm not going to... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's tackle this last chapter. Um, it's... It, I think we, we talked a lot about its, its efficacy as a final chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can circle back to that uh, at the end here, but I do want to just bring up a few things that I, I really did enjoy um about it um particularly the the scene where mason does finally visit dixon's grave um that one i I think i mentioned earlier that i really liked how it's it's very short and i i I appreciate that about it because I, i feel like this is the kind of scene where a lot of other authors would have would have drawn this scene out and would have um, tried to make this whole long scene about it and really try to just extend as much as they can about it. But this, I mean, it's, it's three paragraphs altogether and it's, it's exactly what it needs to be. And I absolutely love the, the very last line. Um, it's your mate, Dr. Isaac assured him. It's what happens when your mate dies. Mm-hmm. I, that just, 
it it summarizes that again that that male bond and and that friendship that they have and it just it you his son has to tell him like it's okay to grieve it's okay that you feel this way this this man was your friend you loved this man and he's gone so absolutely yes feel this way because it's normal it's natural it's what you should be feeling right now yeah definitely and that that is that same quote is certainly the one that stuck out to me as well just the the quiet impact that a statement like that has is is really powerful in the, in these chapters but i also liked that the the journey that doc and mason have kind of mirrors some of the same things that mason and dixon did in america mm-hmm. just like the kind of going to taverns and walking along these these different pathways with with these different landscapes and everything like i yeah i i really enjoyed the kind of symmetry there he he did it once with somebody that he formed an intense bond with and now he's doing the same thing again with a child that he hopes to have the same sort of intensity and bond with now. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Mason needs. You know, we talked earlier about his finally getting over Rebecca's death and it you know took this long. And I think a lot of that stems from the fact that he, you know, he didn't have anyone else to, to fill that, that void. And now, you know, this other major person in his life is gone, but he's allowing someone else to come and, and step into that and, and to fill that void, you know, and, and he, not only that, but he's also, now he has his relationship with the son that he never had with his father. So for Mason, this is, I, I think a really huge step forward for him. And it's, it, I kind of wish that we could get more of his, of his life after this happens and, and more of his time with his son and see how he grows um, in that relationship with him. But again, you know, the story has to end and we have to be good with it. So I'm, but I'm glad that it at least is, is there so that we know, you know, as a reader, we can kind of fill in that gap and, and know that he has that time and that he will um, get to experience that relationship if only for a little bit longer. Yeah. I do really love that. He finally opens up about Rebecca to his son. Um, you know, definitely is one of those took you long enough type situations. Um, <laughs> I can't really imagine. I mean, I have, I don't, I mean, I have some experience with, with family members dying, but nobody as important as a mother. Um, you know, there were some, my, my dad had a, had a sister die before I was born and stuff that I've asked questions about that he doesn't necessarily bring up that much, but it was, it was, it was while he was a kid. Um, but he's he's always been pretty open to me asking questions about her. Um, yeah, I, I don't. It'd be it'd be very odd to grow your whole life basically with without knowing much about the person that birthed you. Um, I also really like the part where Doc, uh, I, f- I forget what the kid's name is, but Doc or whatever um, is really Doctor Isaac. Yeah, Doctor Isaac is is scared that he was named after the doctor that um, he'll I. Yeah, that it was involved with his mom's death, um, which is definitely the type of thing that you know a, a child's gonna a child is gonna internalize that kind of stuff. You know, like 
children will often blame themselves uh, for stuff that has nothing to do with them. Um, I have some experience with that uh, in a few different ways. Um, you know, it, it, I really, I, I enjoyed that. It definitely humanizes uh, the, I think they're probably teenagers at this point or early twenties. Definitely humanizes the, his two older boys. Um, the fact that the one is so insecure about it and that the other one is, is so nice and uh, reassuring um, cause I'm sure, you know, with, with their mom passed away and their dad constantly absent, they probably had to learn to rely on each other a little bit more oh, yeah. than, uh, than most siblings would. Um, I found that very touching and I do kind of like, well, I mean, while I wish that they had played a bigger part in in the novel as a whole, um, you know, it is stated that Mason had been kind of running away from them and them being it's not stated, but it's implied at least to me that him running away from them is, is related to um, Rebecca and them reminding him of Rebecca, uh, mm. how he like looks in their face and sees Rebecca and stuff. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I like this chapter probably more than y'all do. So. But then we get, Mason learning about the discovery of Uranus, which um, that section, that paragraph is, is one of my favorites in these, in these chapters. Um, the, mm-hmm. the way it's described is his, you know, his inability to really enjoy the, the experience of a discovery um, just due to all the circumstances that, that have come before it um, and how that all plays out in his mind is, is, absolutely beautifully written yeah definitely and it's i mean it's also additionally interesting given that we know he would have covered uranus if they had pushed past the warrior path yeah, yeah. I, and I, I feel like he knows that somewhere in, in the back of his mind that that yeah. could have been his yeah i agree it won't be um so then I mean, not long after that, Mason, um, you know, has his kind of final moments and his his kind of final interactions with um, Masculine and, and Ben Franklin. I feel like we should just read that out. Do you want to? Uh, what page is it on? Uh, 771. 771. Because, I mean, we've made enough references to it at this point. It's that... Yeah, it deserves a good going over masculine understood that ma- what <laughs> masculine under- masculine understood that mason meant not there upon the royal society council his parsonical scowl dropped from forehead to eyes as we clench our face sometimes against sentiment no records survive however of when neville masculine did or did not weep what he did do now was turn away from mason and for the first time and the last time not turn back to face him the last Mason saw of him was the back of his wig. The next year, after several dramatic votes and skirmishes, though not all that many stick-enhanced injuries, everyone in the Royal Society ended most frightful chums and Masculine was back on the council, remaining so thereafter, year upon year, until his passing. I gotta feel bad for the guy. To be, I mean, you know, as we talked about, to, to have everything you've done undermined and overshadowed by someone like masculine mm-hmm. 
And uh, it's just, yeah, that's, that sucks. Yeah. Yeah. So then we have Mason's final scene where he's talking with, uh, with Franklin and with, uh, his, his new wife, Mary. Um, but then for me, I, I, you know, and again, we talked about this, the, the last, the last paragraph is just absolutely perfect. Um, throughout, you know, in spite, in spite of this, this chapter's stronger and weaker points, you know, I, I do think this last paragraph is, is truly the best ending we could have gotten. It's, there's nothing I would change about it. Yeah, I'm certainly not, you know, I, I don't hate it. But as I as I mentioned at the top of the show, I feel like it could it could potentially be organized a bit better. But well, unless anybody has anything else, um, I think that that does it for seventy four through seventy eight. Um, let's talk about funny stuff because there was definitely there was some pretty good uh, humorous scenes in these in these chapters. Um, I did like the when they were talking about the, I forgot to put the page number on it. It was in chapter 74 when they were talking about the, uh, the bog, damn it, my brain tonight, I swear. The bog burst. Um, when it started happening again, and then there was the line, look out, here comes, what, a repeat? Stupid pun, but those always <laughs> work for me. I think my most funny part, I'm having trouble finding it right now, but it's the part where he talks about like I've ascended and descended and all this stuff, and I've never transcended. Oh, yeah. Oh, that was yeah. That is a good one. Yeah. Yeah. I think also the the inclusion that when Mason is talking to Masculine, he says, well, you're the AR, and he over, he <laughs> over pronounces the R like a pirate for some yeah. reason. That was another one that stood out to me, other than just the absurd stuff that Mason was trying to put into his into his logs. Yeah. I think all in all, though, I I didn't have this in my notes because I hadn't tracked it at the time, but Luke's mention of, of the row. Fucking masculine <laughs> row. Uh, I yeah. think that's, that does it for me. That's fair. That might actually almost be the most pinch-on part of these chapters, too. It might, yeah. Yeah, yeah generally, the, the all the descriptions of costumes in this pa- in this last section, or, yeah, uh, clothes, I guess. Um, it's very garish and over-the-top. Yeah. Well, shall we go into quotes, then? Sure. We don't have Will. No one can steal from Will, so we can just say well, we all stole Will's quote. I was just going to say, and maybe none of us stole from Will, but also maybe all of us did. Exactly. Um, Kay, do you want to go first? Sure. Uh, my quote comes from page 771, where it says, Will stem of use, Mason says, they shan't seek my dissolution. Not in the thick of this dispute over the Bradley Obbs, so-called. These being many of them my own. No one wants to repeat what went on between Newton and Flamsteed, excepting perhaps one of the Kabbalistic turn, who believes those arrays of numerals to be the magical text that will deliver him to immortality. Or suspects that Bradley found something. Something as important as the aberration, but more ominous. Something France may not have or not right away, and Jesuits must not learn of ever. 
something so useful and deadly that rather than publish his suspicions or even reduce the data any further, Bradley simply left them as an exercise for anyone strongly enough interested. And what could that be? What phantom shape implicit in the figures? Ah, you old quizzer. Franklin tries to beam. Mason continuing to regard him, not pleading, but as if it didn't matter much what Franklin thinks. Tis a construction, Mason said weakly. Single great engine the size of a continent. I have all the proofs you may require. Not all the connections are made yet, but that's why some of it is still invisible. Day by day, the pioneers and surveyors go on. More points are being tied in, soon becoming visible as above. New stars are recorded and named and placed in almanacs. You found it, have ye? This certainly isn't that curious design with the trifling cost that you sent me along with your letter. Sir, you have encountered deists before, and know that our Bible is nature. Wherein the Pentateuch is the sky, I have found there written every night in astral gematria messages of great urgency to our time and your continent, sir. I pick that set of dialogue between Mason and Franklin because I think it completes another part of Mason's character in that he's now comfortable proclaiming himself a deist as he does mm -hmm. at the end there, which feels like a sort of final evolution to his religious struggles through the course of this book. But I think it also speaks to a lot of the broader thematic content of this book as a whole. Because Mason is laying out this idea that there is an interwoven fabric of religion and mathematics and astronomy and, you know, nature and the land that all fits together to create something. And it's something that he would be afraid of the existing religious orders having access to or even knowing about. It's something that if you seek, you may find if you look for it. And finally, he's referring to it as this great engine, which could very much be a reference to the deistic idea of how God sort of created a clock and then set it to run and then ran away. But it could also speak to something significantly more, you know, mind-melting, like Luke's theory about potentially references to a Dyson Sphere or, or other things. But it, it feels like this beautiful synthesis of so many of the different thematic aspects that this book is running along, mm -hmm. where you finally have this man who's been confused about religion and his work professionally and these different kind of crazy characters that he's met along the way that have these different interpretations of the world and also his mentor in the past and all of that sort of finally fitting together in an explanation that's good enough for him. And he's finally reached a point where he's no longer so confused and scattered. And so that was why I picked it. It, it feels like kind of one of those last final moments where Mason finally becomes the person he's been trying to become, albeit very late in his life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a final catharsis for him. It's the kind of the last yeah. thing he needed to come to terms with. Yeah. Luke, what do you what do you have? Uh yeah, so mine is the first paragraph on seven twenty six. I thought about the last paragraph on seven twenty five because it's also pretty good, but um 
Yeah, so it reads, Now nothing in the sky looks the same. As to the comet, I cannot account for how. But there came this night to the this boggy, miasmatic place, an exceptional clarity of the air, a sort of optical tension among the stars that seemed ever just about to break radiantly through. And there, in Leo, bright-maned, low, it came. It came ahead. And twould be but prelude to the finger of Corsica, which now appeared, pointing down from heaven. And the place where it pointed was the place I knew I must journey to, for beneath the skyborne index lay as once beneath a star, an infant that must again remake the world. And this time t'was a sign from earth, not only from heaven, showing the way. That's a great paragraph. I had that one picked as well. So mine, um, as I mentioned earlier, I, I really the uh, the prose that was used when describing the Hollow Earth, and so I've selected. It starts at the end of seven thirty nine, uh, when Dixon is explaining his journey to the North Pole. The ice giving way to tundra, we proceeded ever downhill into a not quite total darkness. The pressure of the air slowly increasing, each sound soon taking on a whispering aftertone as from some sort of immense compo- uh, composite echo, until we were well inside, hundreds of miles below the outer surface, having clung to what we now walked upon quite handily all the way, expecting that we'd arrived upside down as bats in a belfry. The interior had remained less studied philosophically than endured anxiously by those who might choose to travel diametrically across it, means of flight having been developed early in the history of the inner surface. Their god, like that of the Iroquois, lives at their horizon. Here it is the nor- their north or south horizon, each a more and less dim ellipse of, of skylight. The curve of the rim is illuminated, depending on the position of the sun, in greater or lesser relievo. Chains of mountains, thin strokes of towers, the eternally spilling lives of thousands dwelling in the long, asterial towns, wrapping from outside to inside as the water rushes away in uncommonly long waterfalls. Downward for hours, unbraked till at last debouching into an interior lake of great size, upside down but perfectly secured to its lake bed by gravity as well as centrifugal force, and in which upside down swimmers glide at perfect ease, hanging over an abyss thousands of miles deep. From wherever one is, to raise one's eyes is to see the land and water rise ahead of one and behind as well, higher and higher till lost in the thickening of the atmosphere. In the larger sense, then, to journey anywhere in this terra concava is to ever ascend, with its corollary, outside, here upon the convexity, to go anywhere is ever to descend. So yeah, I, I just love the the descriptions of the hollow earth in, in this book, and, and in Against the Day as well, but obviously this one came first. Um, it's... You know, again, we've we've talked before that you know Pynchon's ability to write nature scenes is one of his, I think, stronger um, writing parts. God, that's a terrible sentence. Um, <laughs> he his his writing when it comes to I think above most other writers. I think he has an eloquence that um, that dis- he can describe these scenes so poetically um, without getting too flowery and, and without really um, 
leaving too much out. It's a well-balanced um, writing style, specifically when he's doing these kind of nature scenes. And I think it's really interesting when he, when he inverts that nature. I have the, these lakes that are on the ceiling and waterfalls that go on for hours. Convexity versus a concavity. It's just, it's absolutely beautiful writing. And probably one of my favorite parts of these four chapters. Yeah, it's a great choice. It's, it's some of the best writing in these sections. Well, what do we feel is the most Pinchon part of this last part of the book? Ah, I mean, now that I've suggested that it's the robe, I feel... I, that's where I'm going with it, too. Like it would be wrong to pick anything <laughs> else. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have anything in my notes for it because I, I just couldn't nail down one part. And I was like, as we, go, as we talk about it, I'll figure it out. And we did. We figured it out. We did. It's, we did. It's Masculine the, is Mickey Mouse. He's the... The wizard from the what was it Cookie Crisp cereal? <laughs> yep. So. If if only he had a magic wand. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Luke, do you do you have a different most pinch on part? Um. No, I mean I guess we already kind of went over it, but yeah, this the different clothes and costumes. Well, that's it, guys. We we finished Mason and Dixon. Um, we did. It took us what five months. We've been we've been talking about this, and I've enjoyed every minute of it. It's been great. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, we will be doing a capstone, um, covering the whole book and and our general feelings on it. Uh, and if anybody's opinion on it has changed as a result of this reading, um, so. We would, I would, I think I can speak for all of us when I say, you know, we would love for any listeners to let us know has, has your opinion on this book changed as a result of, of rereading it and going through this with us? Do you like it more? Do you like it less? Um, do you, you know, do you feel like the things that maybe you didn't catch the first time or the second time or the third time or however many times you've read this before? Um, do those add anything fundamental to your, your understanding of the book or your, your, you know, what you come away with it, anything that you feel about it, let us know. And, uh, we'll share it on our next episode next week. Um, so until then, thank you all so much for listening. Um, check us on our social media stuff. It's all in the show notes and everything. And we'll see everyone next week. See ya. Bye. I am almost done with guards, guards. Oh, yeah? How are you liking it? Uh, I... <laughs> this is... That sigh has me curious <laughs> where this is going. I... can perfectly understand why people really like Pratchett. And okay. I'm not, I'm not going to say that I dislike it. I'm not going to say that I dislike him. I'm not going to say that I dislike the book. Because I don't. I think it is funny. It has the same sort of brand of British humor as like Hitchhiker's Guide and, mm -hmm. you know, um, Neil Gaiman when Neil Gaiman is trying to be to be dryly funny or like Monty Python or things like that. So that when the humor does show up, I think it's it's pretty good. And I like the degree of world building that he he goes into to try and make Ankh-Morpork feel like a real place. 
for the disc world to feel like a real place like him having consistent mentions of like street names and places on those streets and and what they are to the society are really good my biggest complaint is it doesn't always feel like he knows how to move his story along that's fair like it feels like a lot of individual scenes that are really entertaining and are oftentimes really funny, but that he lacks some ability to connect them in a continuous evolution to get to where the story is supposed to be going. And that is my, my biggest complaint with guards guards where it, it kind of just feels like a lot of stuff is happening and then eventually it ends up here and it isn't necessarily clear or perhaps well laid out how all of that got to that point. Yeah, no, that's totally fair. I think I, I definitely see where you're coming from more. So now that I'm rereading hitchhiker's guide, because Uh I I think I, this may be a, a broad generalization here but i think that is maybe more indicative of british humor that type of british humor especially because you also you did mention monty python and douglas adams um the like hitchhiker's guide itself the first book is great through and through Mm -hmm. wonderful book the later books, because uh, I'm like halfway through Life, the Universe, and everything right now, and I I remember most of the other two books, but they have they suffer from that same problem of just feeling more like these very loosely interconnected stories that don't necessarily have a whole lot of plot going for them, but there's enough of it to keep you engaged and and have it not feel like just a series of vignettes. Monty Python did the same thing too. I, I think it worked to greater success with, um, with Holy Grail. Life of Brian was totally different because that was a very much plot-driven um, mm-hmm. story. But Meaning of Life suffered that same kind of thing, where it was just more interconnected stories that loosely tied through a theme. Um, so I, I'm, I think it may just be, and I've read some of, um, why am I blanking on his name? Terry Jones. Um, him and Douglas Adams wrote a book together um i can't remember the name of it off the top of my head now but it suffered from that same kind of problem um so i'm i'm curious and other pratchett i've read has the same thing too so i'm curious if that's just a, a british humor writing situation where they're more focused on just humorous scenes and and not so much on plot i don't know yeah maybe I, i'm i'm curious i want to read more of it like i I'm looking forward to reading Small Gods and oh, Small Gods is great. Um, I I really also want to read the Death series because mm. Death when mm. Death has shown up in Guards Guards, it has been some of my favorite stuff. <laughs> That's yeah. Um, yeah. just it, that whole scene. I guess spoilers for people who haven't read a book <laughs> from what what is Guards Guards 1999 or whatever. So um, maybe later, maybe earlier. Yeah. Uh, the scene where the dragon has started to actually take control of the rituals and is like no longer being controlled by the Supreme Grandmaster. And all of them are trying, like all of the other members of the cult are talking amongst themselves about how something doesn't feel right. And death is occasionally interjecting in there because it's in all caps. Yeah. And then eventually when they do die, just his like 
dryly sarcastic response to everybody when they die and he's the first person they see i man that's that kills me every time he appears <laughs> so i really i really want to read the books where he is the main character yeah yeah i just picked up a copy of guards guards the other the other day um like four but have you read it before no okay I want the to hear only that I've, I've read is parts is like the first like hundred pages of Good Omens. Okay, I liked Good Omens. It was good. I, I should have finished it. I just was going through stuff at that time and just never. Yeah, that's understandable. That's yeah. I'll, I'll I... be curious what your experience is like, Luke, if it's similar to mine or not. Yeah, now I want to go back and read Good Omens again. I tried to watch the show. I did. I couldn't get as into it. I have a problem with watching shows like closely after reading the source book because mm-hmm. it just like I tried to watch um, Preacher after I read that series for like the fifth time oh sure and I just couldn't like I I loved that graphic novel so much I could never get into the show because it just never had the same it didn't have the same feel and I, I didn't get the impression that they were going to take the same um, chances with a lot of the really edgy parts of the of that series Mm-hmm. I don't think they can get away with some of that stuff on TV, no matter what oh, yeah, cable not. channel they're on. Yeah. It, it, I mean, so f- as someone who is also a very big fan of Preacher and did watch the show, it is about as good of an adaptation as you can get for okay. what that series is. Um, all, all three of the main characters are excellently cast. And, I did, yeah, I did like that. They, they and, were, yeah. they were all, and like their performance through the whole, their whole thing is is incredibly well done. Um, I may have to go back to it. Yeah, so How I mean, many seasons I, I, did it run? Four or five. Okay, they they completed it. That's good. At least they got to do that. Why the last man never got to do that, and that still bothers me. Four seasons. Okay. Yeah, because I, I I forgot that um, Steve Dillon died not too long ago. No, it was longer. It was a while back, wasn't it? Steve Dillon's death? Yeah, 2016. I, I don't know why I thought it was like 2020. A lot of people died in 2016. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, 2016 and 17. The other um, Discworld book that I want to read quite a bit is uh monstrous regiment i've not read that one it's i, I think it's, i picked that one up really too cheap. i think that one yeah. was one i found the other day too it was uh there was a, a turf who was trying to say that terry pratchett would be an anti-trans individual if he was still oh. alive um Fuck which I, person. I yeah which i think is really funny uh if you know anything about terry pratchett but um one of the people who was articulating why this couldn't be true used monstrous regiment as an example of it um because if you don't know what it's about cody uh it is a a division of um soldiers from borogravia that um are all secretly women uh quote-unquote pretending to be men um Hmm. and there there's obviously a lot of humor in the the main character discovering that this is the case like the longer the book goes on but there are some really amazing sections from it um 
that this person who is articulating Terry Pratchett's view, what Terry Pratchett's views on trans people likely would be, where he was pulling from that book uh, in the way that it deals with gender and identification and the way that people refer to themselves or want to be perceived. That seemed very, very interesting. Yeah, that's... I hate that someone would make that declaration about him, you know? And I would... From what I know about Pratchett, he doesn't seem like the type that would do, like, you know, a complete heel turn like John Cleese. So I, I would like to think that he would... You know, he seemed like a genuinely good person who cared about pretty much mm-hmm. everybody. So, 